Good morning, friends. Our message for today is entitled simply, Sticks and Stones. It's based on Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 19. You may want to grab your Bible and follow along. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You've no doubt heard that little rhyme, and you've probably even used it at times. When I was growing up, it was kind of a standard playground retort to an insult. But of course, we all know that those words were simply a bluff. They had as much value as the rhyme itself. Words do have a capacity to hurt far greater than any sticks or stones. I'm sure that there are people listening to this message who are still bearing the scars of things people have said to them in the past, even the long-gone past. Not that all words of insult hurt as much as each other. Words that come as a slip of the tongue are not nearly as painful as those that are premeditated. And the pain is magnified if they come from someone close to us, from a child or a brother or a sister or a parent. But that sort of insult pales into significance when we compare it to the insult that Jesus is telling us about in Luke 20. If you like, this is the ultimate insult because it's delivered not against a fellow human being, but against the loving, the long-suffering heart of God himself. This parable we have before us is the last one in Luke's gospel, and perhaps it's even the last that Jesus ever told. In fact, there's some argument about whether this is really a parable at all. Rather, it's kind of more of an allegory where, unlike the other parables, the meaning is barely hidden in details of the story itself. Certainly, the scribes and the chief priests at the end of the parable have no trouble working out what it means. So let's take a look at it and see what Jesus has to teach us by it. Well, first of all, he talks about the human condition. Jesus told this parable or allegory just as he was about to enter Jerusalem. And well, now he's entered the city with quite a fanfare, and the first thing he's done is to drive out the money changers and merchants from the temple courts. This, of course, doesn't make the Pharisees and chief priests very happy, so they challenge him on where he gets the authority for an act like that. His response is to turn the tables back on them. He begins by asking them how they understood John's baptism. Was it from heaven, or was it of human origin? In other words, where did John's authority come from? You know, that puts them in a bit of a spin, and while they're fumbling for an answer, he tells them this story. He begins by saying, A man planted a vineyard and leased it to tenants and went to another country for a long time. Now, for Jesus' listeners, this would have rung loud bells. The vineyard was a well-known Old Testament metaphor for the nation of Israel. In Isaiah 5, God tells them how he planted a vineyard, but when he came to harvest it, all he could find was bad fruit. You know, it's such a famous parable of the failure of Israel that Jesus' hearers couldn't have help but think of it as they listened to this parable. And as the parable progresses, it becomes more and more clear that he's pointing the finger of criticism at them. Elsewhere, he accuses them of being no better than their forefathers who killed the prophets. That's back in Luke 11, 47-49. And here he goes further in predicting that they'll even kill God's only son. At first, the story only indicates their greed and their impudence towards the owner. But as the story progresses, we find the true motivation behind this incredible act of rebellion. In verse 14, 
But when the tenants saw the son, they discussed it among themselves and said, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. The true motivation behind their action is this. Although they've been placed in the vineyard as tenants, renters, they don't want to acknowledge the true owner of the vineyard. They want to be the owners themselves. Now, the danger when we read a parable like this is to see what Jesus is saying in the original context. That is, that the Jewish leaders have rejected God's rule over them and are about to reject God's Son as well and to leave it there. We think what horrible, terrible, wicked, bad, nasty people these hypocritical chief priests and scribes were, and we think that's all there is to learn from it. But to think that is to miss the sting in the story, because what Jesus is describing here is the condition of every fallen human being. The vineyard is a picture not just of Israel, but of the whole world. All of us have been put on this earth as tenants or stewards in God's vineyard. And what's our response? We don't want to be tenants paying rent. We want to be the owners. Adam and Eve were placed in the garden in the first place and given the task of tending it, and what happened? They decided it would be good to be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. And human beings have been doing that, that very same thing ever since. The people of Israel, from the moment God liberated them from Egypt, kept on turning away from the true worship of God to idols, until eventually God drove them from the promised land and sent them into exile. The kings of Israel present a long line of failure after failure to do what was right, with a few odd exceptions. And it's continued right through to our own day. A little over a hundred years ago, humanist philosophers were predicting a golden age where God would be irrelevant, when poverty, disease, war, it would all be uh, done away with. Well, human advances in science and medicine and sociology would solve all of our problems for us, they said. But a hundred years later, we look around our world and see incurable diseases, wars happening with an increasing regularity, Relationships breaking down at an alarming rate, and we wonder how could things have gotten so bad? What's gone wrong in God's vineyard? Well, friends, the answer is pretty clear. People are still wanting to run the vineyard themselves rather than follow God's direction. Here's why millions of people are starving while a small number waste the world's food resources. Here's why the socialist dreams of the communist bloc fail to materialize. Here's why almost 50% of the marriages end in divorce. Why? It's because none of us wants to follow someone else's agenda. We want to be the owners, not the tenants. And can I just say that this is just as much a problem in the church itself? I realized someone was joking when they said that one denomination's method of church growth is to have a fight and split the church. But it isn't a joke, is it? I mean, how many denominations or independent churches have sprung up in the past century that way? all because people don't want to follow someone else's lead. And as you read through this story, I hope you notice two things. Notice, first of all, what I'd call the insane insolence of the tenants. This is a rebellion that's doomed to failure, yet they seem to think they can get away with it. How can we puny creatures think that we can shake our fists at God and not suffer any consequences? How can we go on rejecting anything and anyone that God sends to us to remind us of the debt that we owe him and think we can get away with it. I mean, there's no way God will put up with that sort of thing, is there? Well, maybe that's the second interesting thing you notice here. 
The amazing thing about this story is that the owner, and that's God, tolerates the rebellion for so long. I mean, it's an example of God's incomprehensible concern for us. It's the lengths to which God will go to keep us on track, to maintain contact with us, despite our stubbornness and blind ignorance. And of course, it's the lengths to which God will go, even to send his own son on a rescue mission. Let's move on and second, let's consider Jesus' mission. You see, the response of the owner to the repeated refusal to listen to his envoys is to decide to send his own son in the last attempt to talk reason to them. Now, notice how Jesus at this point answers the question of the chief priests in verse 2 as he identifies himself as that son, as the unique, the beloved son of God. And notice that the claim is as important today as it was in Jesus' day. There are still people in the church today who want to downplay or even deny the deity of Christ. I was talking to someone the other day who told me about a time his father was talking to his local pastor, and he commented on the difficulty he had with the idea of Jesus' resurrection. And believe it or not, his pastor said, that's okay, I have the same trouble. In fact, I don't really believe the resurrection happened at all. And when I hear that, I say, what sort of a state is the church in? if its leaders don't believe in the deity of Christ. The leaders of Jesus' day didn't, of course, and as a result, they put him to death. One can only think that had Jesus come today, his end would have been the same. Rejected by those he came to save, put to death because we didn't want to submit to God's authority, all because we wanted to be the owners and not the tenants. Well, third, let's consider Jesus' understanding of the future. What's clear is that Jesus understands what waits. He's clearly predicting his death at the hands of those God has put in charge of his nation. But equally clear is Jesus' understanding of the long-term future. He knows that the eternal gospel doesn't allow for anyone to run the vineyard except the owner himself, and that's God. Listen to how the angels in Revelation 14, 6, and 7 announce the eternal gospel. Then I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. The eternal gospel, which has been proclaimed from the beginning right through the end, is this. God is to be worshipped and glorified. He is the only God. Obey him. And at the end of history, we're going to see God finally losing patience with those who continue to rebel against him. God will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to other people. Of course, the danger is that we look at those events and think that God isn't doing anything about evil in the world. More importantly, we see that he lets us get away with evil in our own lives. And we think that we can go on getting away with it. We think we can sin with impunity. But friends, let me tell you something. God is not mocked. He does not ignore us. Divine patience isn't the same as divine indifference. His patience is merely to give us more time to repent. But time will come when time will have run out. A time when he will come to judge the world. In our parable, he then looks straight at them, as if to make his point even stronger, and says, What then does this text mean? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. 
<clears throat> and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. The stone that the builders rejected is a quote from Psalm 118, a psalm about the coming Messiah. It's a psalm that tells how the Messiah appears defeated, perhaps even dead, yet God lifts him up and makes him king. So again, Jesus is pointing to himself as the issue on which people will stand or fall. He's the stone on which they'll stumble. The bit about the stone falling on those who oppose him reminds me of the end of the story of Samson. If you remember that when Samson pushes the pillars apart and the whole building falls down, killing all the Philistines inside. It's as though Jesus is saying, if you push me out of the structure, the structure will fall. And if we don't have want Jesus at the center, what's going to hold up our so-called religion? Answer, nothing. And the end result will be that we'll be crushed in the collapse of whatever it is we've built up. The basis on which God will judge the world will be the way people have responded to his son. The basis on which God will judge me and you will be on our response to Jesus as well. So I ask you, friends, have you believed in him as God's only son? Have you called on him in repentance and faith to forgive your rebellion? It is though Jesus turns now to look straight at each one of us, just as he did those in the crowd that day and asks, Will you believe in me? Will you put your trust in me? Will you pay me the honor and obedience that I'm due? Friends, our eternal future depends on our response to that question. I pray that for every one of us, the answer would be, Yes, Lord, I will.